of Ruth. Now, I almost made a horrible, horrible mistake. Um, I had scheduled to preach the end of Judges today. I was going to preach literally one of the worst stories in the entire Bible on Mother's Day. And the Lord caught it, and we're doing Ruth instead. So that's great. The story that was just read to us from Ruth is a very, very beautiful story. It starts off beautiful anyway. You have a husband and his wife, Elimelech and Naomi. And they're married, and they have two sons. They are wealthy in their, among, their, among their neighbors. See, in that world, in that land, sons were to be cherished. Sons were, every family wanted boys. I know, I'm not trying to dog girls. I'm just telling you, back in the day, so if you had a girl, um, if she married someone, you had to pay a dowry. So if you had a little girl, you had to pay to marry her off. Here's, you know, 10 cows and four chickens and marry my daughter. You got to pay a dowry for that. Um, not only that, but wives would leave the home. So if you had a daughter, she would someday marry and go live with his family. If you had a son, though, they'd stay in your house, in your tribe, and he would marry, and the girl would come to your land and live with you. So everyone wanted boys. And Naomi and Elimelech have two sons. But it says that they left their hometown and went to Moab. They literally left their hometown. And they became immigrants. They became migrant workers, and they traveled to a land called Moab, and he got a job far from home. Now, the story takes a turn because Elimelech, the father, the man of the house, he dies. And that moment, the, the happy story is broken. This poor lady's a widow. She's buried her husband. Now, a lot of the time when this happens, you're in real trouble real fast. Because in this world, women cannot own property. So you needed either a father, a husband, or an adult male son to cover you with authority. Her husband dies, she's in trouble, but thankfully, she has two adult sons. So she's not alone in this hard, hostile world. Her two boys marry girls from Moab. And she's like, you know what, this is going to be okay. You know, my husband's gone, but I have two sons. They just got wives. It's going to be okay. And then her two sons die. And now you have a widowed woman and her two widowed daughters-in-law. And they're alone in the world. And I want to tell you how much danger they're in. In India, where I used to live, I lived in India for a few years, there's a lady in our village and her husband left her. She had two children. Her husband left her and she was now uncovered in the world, uneducated, in a world that's very patriarchal. No education, no job opportunities. No one would marry her because she was divorced. It's funny, in that land, men can remarry, women cannot because things are often unfair like that towards women in lands like this. So this, this woman who lived across the street from us began selling her body to survive. 
She entered that trade to provide for her family. That brought her into condemnation. The village talked about her in certain ways. Her kids were ostracized because they were the children of that kind of woman. And then one day she got HIV. And she was further ostracized. That's the fate of someone in this land who's uncovered. Naomi, a widow. Her two daughters-in-laws, widows. Tragedy, um, of tragedy on top of tragedy. So much so that when Naomi returns home, in verse 19, Naomi returns home back to the land where she was born, to Israel. In verse 19, Naomi and Ruth travel back to Israel. It says, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was there because of them. The women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. You call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi's name has a meaning. Hebrew names have great meanings. In America, our names, ah, not so much. But in, in, in Hebrew, the names have very powerful meanings. And Naomi's name meant sweet. Her name was sweetness, harmony. She comes back to her hometown. They say, is this the sweet one who's come back home. And she says, don't you call me sweet no more. You call me Mara. You call me bitter. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She is a, she comes home a broken, destitute, despairing woman without hope. She left, I, I left this town and I was, my heart was full. I had a husband, I had two sons, I had all the things I ever wanted. I come back to you and I have nothing. I have nothing. How did this happen? There's a verse, there's a word, if you miss, you miss the whole point of the story. Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. Why did Elimelech have to leave Israel in the first place? Why did he have to leave and become a migrant somewhere else in order to provide for his family? We learned last week that the book of Judges is essentially a TV show. And every episode begins with the phrase, The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And every episode begins, when the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, God would give them over, and they would be invaded, they would be beat up, they would face famine and pain. Which means, Elimelech was alive, living in Israel. The nation turns to sin, and punishment for their sin, famine falls on the land. Elimelech was forced to leave his home, to leave his kinsfolk, to leave his people because of the sin of his own nation. This book of Ruth has a purpose. 
you read the book and really look at it for a while, you'll see the purpose of the book is to show us that God is good. He wants good for his people. And he provided that good by giving people a good law. He gave his nation, he gave his people this good law to provide for them, to care for them, to protect them. And the first thing that God's good law does, God's good law, it warns people about the penalty of sin. God's good law warns us about the penalty of sin. God told all the people, if you leave me, your land will suffer, your families will suffer. If you leave me, you will know great pain. He warns them with a stop sign saying, caution, do not enter this place. And the nation says, ah, oh, forget about it. They go in and they feel all the pain that God intended to save them from. Now here at Flint City, it's one of my goals to be encouraging. Life is hard. I know it is, man. I was uh, doing the pantry yesterday over on the east side of the city. We had 100 cars come through in like 45 minutes. We started packing the boxes, okay, packing boxes for, for families in the city. And people saw us starting to pack, and we, like, within 10 minutes, we had a line literally two blocks down, uh, down the street, like around the church building, Going down Richfield Road all the way past the Cantonese East. And I asked people, a lot of new people came. A lot of new people came on um, Saturday. I said, why, why are you here? You've never been here before. They said, man, gas is high. My grocery bill is higher. My rent is going up. I'm being squeezed from every single angle. I just need a little help. They've come to get a box of food and a case of water. I know life is hard. So I try to be encouraging. I try to give words of hope to us on Sunday mornings. But here's the fact of the matter. In the midst of the words of hope I provide, I still have to warn us about the power and the penalty of sin. We can't avoid that God says there are some things in this life that will burn our lives down. I had a lady in that line on Saturday. She came through. She's a Latina lady. Reminded me of my grandma. She comes through, and I just, I just put my head in the window. I'm like, how you doing today? And she just starts crying. Like, What's the matter? She tells me a long story. The story crescendos with her husband of over 30 years walking out on the family and leaving her and her five kids destitute. That man has chosen selfishness and sinfulness and is plunging all those children into suffering. Sin brings suffering. Sin, it breaks the world. Uh, I work with addicts a lot. I, I, one of our ministries as a church, we work with ad, addiction ministries. Just this week, Miss Helen came with me to... Um, life challenge and share a testimony, and it was powerful. But sometimes I'll talk to addicts on the street, people I know who are just burning their lives down, they'll tell me things in their moment of frustration. I'll confront someone to their face. They'll say, why do you care? It's my life. I'm like, shut your mouth. 
It's not just our lives. Every addict I know, they bring everyone they love to their addiction. Right? If you're here and you love someone who's an addict, you suffer with them. You cry, you worry, you pray. You don't know how to act. Should I give them tough love or soft love? Should I believe them or not believe them? And we never know what to do because it's so hard because addicts are the best liars in the world. They really are. Sin breaks the world. The people of Israel are in sin. Famine comes to the land. Elimelech's forced to leave his home. He dies and leaves his wife alone in a foreign land. When we, as Christ followers, who know what is good, when we choose to live our lives selfishly and cruelly, we make the world a worse place. It's not just us. In the Bible, there are three enemies. The devil, the flesh, and the world. The devil, well, we heard about that guy. He's the devil. Scary movies. The flesh is that thing in us that likes to do wrong. We all got that thing. We all got the thing that's just like, get him. Like we have a thing inside of us that just likes doing bad. But the world is a weird enemy. The world simply means culture. Because if a bunch of sinful people create a culture Sinful people build a sinful culture. And every culture in the world has good things in it and horrible things in it. In America, one of our great sins is greed. And our greed has made a land that is hard for the poor. When I was, first got married, or if I get married, I had no credit. I thought to myself, I'm going I'm to I'm get married. I wanted no bad credit. So I, I paid all cash. We get married, go get an apartment. They're like, Ernesto, you have no credit. I'm like, I know. I did good, didn't I? And they're like, no. They're like, bad credit better than no credit. I'm like, what are you talking about? No credit. Angie had bad credit. I know credit. So we're, we're a mess when we got married. In those early days, I, I, I was beg and borrowing from every bank around, and no one gave me a credit card to build my credit. Everyone's like, man, we don't know you. No help for you. No one rent me an apartment. No one gave us a credit card. When I was poor, when I was early in my life, no one would help us do nothing. Well, now, I'm 40-something years old. 41? 41. I'm established financially, and every week of my life, I get, I, get, I get calls and letters saying, here's credit cards, take our money. Now that I have money, the door's open. When I had nothing, the doors were closed. They were closed. However, I bought a house, and we had no down payment. We had to pay something called PMI on our mortgage. You, ever, you guys know PMI? It's, called, it's known as prime mortgage interest. Poor man's insurance is what it's called. Because we don't have any money, you penalize us for having a house. And every month, $100 is like, whoosh, it just went away. 100 bucks just into the air. Here you go, bank. Go to Vegas again. I don't know. Do what you're going to do. But if there's sin in people, 
And all those people are sinners in the same way. It, be, it builds a sinful culture. And that culture is where this tragedy happened for Elimelech and Ruth, Elimelech and Naomi. They lost everything there. When Naomi comes home, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, in a beautiful show of solidarity, says, I will not leave you, my mother-in-law. I will come with you to Israel. Oh, geez. I'll come with you to Israel. <laughs> I'll come with you to Israel. She says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And Ruth says, I'm with you to the end. And these two women go back to the promised land. And then something crazy happens. How are they going to survive, these two women? How are they going to survive? They have no real skill set. They can't read. What do they do? The lady in India sold her body. What are these women going to do? Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Remember that guy, Boaz. So Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Stop there. She says, I'm going to go glean in this field of a guy you kind of know. What is gleaning? Gleaning, when God set up the nation of Israel. God said to every farmer, and everyone's a farmer. He goes, listen, everyone who's farming. Um, you know when you mow your lawn, you're pushing your lawn mower, and you, you come to a corner in the fence, and you turn, and you leave this corner unmowed? You got to come back, and you got to, like, mow it, like, three times to get it? Okay. God says, when you've got your oxen, and your plow, and you're going, and you're harvesting the grain, and you take that turn, you cannot come back and harvest that corner. You leave that corner for all the poor and hurting in Israel. Not only that, God says, as you load the grain into the cart, stuff will fall out of the cart as you walk. And God says, you can't go back and pick up what you dropped. You leave that for those who are hurting to glean from the field. See, God builds into his law... Into his holy land, God builds in a way that those who fall down will not die, but have a way to survive. Because God's good law cares for the poor. God's good law. God, from the beginning, wanted to make sure if someone fell down, they did not fall down to death. God built into society a way to catch those who fell off the grid. We live in a city. Over half of our people in our city live below the poverty line. Half. Half the households in our city receive some kind of government assistance. Whether it's food stamps whether it's welfare, whatever. Half of the houses in our city receive help from the government. I've heard my whole life, I moved from Flint to the suburbs, I got saved, 
in a suburban church. And that suburban church, I often hear comments and jokes made about the poor, those who were on welfare or food stamps. Jokes made at their expense, calling them lazy or lacking in pride. When I was a boy, grew up on the east side of our city, my mama was alone. My mama was a single mom. My mom raised three, she had three boys to raise, my mom did. And every two weeks, we'd go to this store in a strip mall. It was a food bank. You'd go into the food bank, and there'd be, it wouldn't be like, not, not, not Lucky Charms, not Heinz. It was like this white boxed government food. It was, it was like raisins, and the raisins had like a, a black square, and it said raisin on it. Or there'd be like milk or peanut butter or cheese. I remember as a kid, I was so embarrassed to go there. I knew we were poor. As a kid, we had something called food stamps, and it wasn't like it is now. You had this little book with multicolored coupons you got to tear out. My mom would send me to the store to go buy milk. Here's a five. I think the five was brown color, I think. And I remember I went to my mom, I don't want to go, mom. I don't want to walk into that stinking corner store. I don't want everyone to know that I am poor. I remember when I moved to Waterford. In Flint, every single kid had free lunch at Flint schools. Every kid. I moved to, I moved to Waterford, and you had to sign up for free lunch. And when you got to the lady, if you needed free lunch, you had to tell them your name. They'd cross them off a list. You had to tell, like everyone knew, my name's Ernesto, and I need free lunch. It was awful. But here's the fact of the matter. The food bank and the food stamps and the free lunch at school, it caught us when we fell. It caught me and my mama and my brothers. It caught us. And we did not die when we were poor. And I hear a lot of Christians say, well, I pay taxes, and my taxes go to all these programs. That's true. I tell you something. If the church did what God called us to do, we wouldn't need so many programs. The, the thing the state's doing, they're doing because we literally just gave it away to the state. State, care for the poor. We want to ignore them. We want to move where they're not. We want to leave where the poor live, and go to a safe little neighborhood where there's no poor people anywhere near me. God has called his people to have the same heart he has, a heart of generosity. There are people we know, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and we watch their lives explode. We see sickness smoke people. We see their car blow up, and we know they don't got the money to fix it. We are allowed, we are allowed to help individually. You can say, pray, Lord. This is one of the reasons why. I'm going to say something crazy now. One of the reasons I live a simple life, one of the reasons I try to remain debt-free in my life is for one main purpose. 
not to build a pile of money to make me feel safe at night, but so I can be generous when God calls me to be generous. If you choose, instead of going into debt for every new cell phone or a new car every five years, whatever it is, we all have our thing, okay? I love tech and toys. You might love clothes and perfume. We all have our things, you know? We, in America, we love blowing our money on crap. We love it. We love it. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> I watched a little kid. Um, that's a little kid. Um, do you get good grades? The kid's like, yeah, I get good grades. Why? So I don't get in trouble. Okay, get good. So the kid's like, why do you get good grades in elementary school? So I go to middle school. Why do you get good grades in middle school? So I can go to high school. Why do you get good grades in high school? So I can go to college. Well, why do you go to college? So I can get a good job. Why do you want a good job? So I can have lots of money. Why do you want lots of money? So I can have a nice house and buy nice things. I'm like, well, why do you want to buy nice things? They're like, I don't know. To have a garage sale someday, I guess. <laughs> right? <laughs> to, get a sto- to build a bigger garage or get a storage unit. My point is, I would love if we as a people were financially strong. Not, not to gain anything from you, so that you could, when God moves, you choose to be generous to those around you who need help. That when God says, speaks to you, man, help that person, you go, but Lord, I got no money left. Ruth and Naomi fell off the edge of the world. But God had built in his people this net to catch them. And we as a church, we do a lot of mercy ministry, okay? When we say four flint, we ain't talking trash, okay? We're in the jails. We're in recovery houses. We work at the homeless. We're on the front line of pretty much every major societal hurt there is. It's where we live and operate. But generosity should be part of our heartbeat. And we don't give to be celebrated. The rich give to a hospital and they get a wing named after them. They give a check as big as my car. And that check is meant for one purpose. Look how nice I am. Don't, I see people, people come to Flint, help out a homeless person, Facebook live the thing, I'm giving this homeless person a sandwich. I'm so spiritual. You know what? Good for you. Get your likes. That's your reward. And the Lord gives you nothing later on. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, I should say it out loud. Um, we don't do it for glory or for fame or for high fives. We do it because we love Jesus and we love the people Jesus loves. That's it. Within Naomi, God created a net and it saved them in their moment of great need. And listen, we've all fallen down. I've had to call people and ask for loans. We've all been there. We've all been weak. And I hope, though, we don't stay down there forever. If we gain a little bit of financial strength, we can choose to instead use our strength to bless others.
with Naomi. Ruth goes out every day. She gleans in the field, picking up this wheat, and her and her mama don't die. They don't die. Ruth and Naomi survive. But where is their hope? They can't only land. No one wants to marry Ruth because she's this foreign lady. She's an immigrant. If you read the whole story, it gets so bad, some of the guys start bothering her as she's picking the wheat because being poor is dangerous, isn't it? Guys are messing with her, and someone has to say, you, everyone leave her alone. No one, he's, no one touch her or I'll deal with you. That's how hard the world is in this time. But God and his law didn't just provide a net. He provides for the broken a path of redemption. Because God's good law provides for the broken. Ruth works in this field, meets a guy named Boaz, tells her mama, Naomi, I met this guy named Boaz. She goes, Boaz is one of Elimelech's distant relatives. And in God's law, God put this law into place that allows relatives to redeem what has been lost. For example, in America, if I give my brother a car, let's say that happens. It's not happening, I'm just giving an example. If I give my brother a car, I can go down to the DMV. What's it called now? Something else. The DMV, you know what I'm saying, DMV. You go to the DMV, Secretary of State's office. If I sell one of you a car, okay, Michigan's gonna, Michigan wants their money, they're going to tax the crap out of you, right? When I was a young pastor, someone gave me a car once, a nice car, as a gift. I got this car, went to the went to Secretary of State's office. I'm like, here's my license, here's the tag thing. I got a car. Like, oh, someone gave it to you? I get so gave it to you as a gift. Isn't this great? Like, well, this car's worth like uh, nine grand, so you owe us like $600 in taxes. I'm like, what? I can't afford the taxes. I can't afford the gift. But if you give your family, your son or daughter, a car, or your, your father or mother, because it's family, there's no tax on it. That's true. So it's, it's a rule. If you give a family member a car, there's no tax because it's a familial gift. Similarly, in God's law, God says, let's say, let's say some guy gets really into debt and he sells himself into indentured servitude. God says one of his relatives can go to the person who's, who owes, the debt is owed and say, listen, I want to cover their debt and redeem them out of indentured servitude. It's called a kinsman redeemer. Someone can go on their behalf Take the hit for their loan and set them free. Well, they realize that Boaz can redeem them because Elimelech has some land in their hometown. But the, the law says if you take the dead man's land, you must also take the dead man's widow and give her a family. And nobody wants to do that. Because those kids, I don't want no new, new kids around my house. I got my own kids. So what happens? Chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, hey, turn aside, friend, sit down here. The guy turned aside, sat down, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. He needs witnesses, you know what I'm saying? They sat down. He said to the Redeemer, listen, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab. She's selling the parcel of land that belonged to a relative, Elimelech. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of all those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me that I may know that there is no one else besides you to redeem it. I come after you. Boaz says, listen, you're number one in line. I'm number two in line. You got dibs. If you don't want dibs, I call it. That's what he's doing. Do you want the land? And the guy's like, I, I will redeem it. I want that land. But Boaz, he's doing a slow play. He's a really good negotiator. It's like selling someone something and telling them, he's like, you want to buy this house? Look how nice it is. There's four rooms. There's also a hole in the roof. Oh, like, 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 he's doing that later. So the guy, you want this land? Yeah, I want that land. He goes, but listen, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem that myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I don't want that widow. I don't want to give her a family, provide for her. Forget that action. I'm out. And if people, if family refuses, if neighbors and family refuse to help their own when they're suffering, they'll fall down. But Boaz says, I will redeem her. And Boaz marries her. Boaz marries Ruth. And they have a child. This is what happens. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. I love that. And your daughter better than any sons you could ever have has given birth to him. Naomi, who was sweet, became bitter. But when God provided redemption, she became sweet again. God saved us when we had nothing. God sent us someone to redeem us from the pit. Now, what, what, what does that mean for us? Because we're not Hebrews. We don't live under Hebrew law. Let me give you a taste of what this could look like in our lives. Imagine you've got a, a, a sibling. I'll say it this way. When I was a kid, didn't have a father. Dad, I never, we left when he was two, never saw him again. My uncle used to come over all the time, play video games with me and my brother. He'd come over and play Nintendo with me and my brother Tony. And I always thought, growing up, that my uncle had no friends and just needed us to be his friends. I thought, man, my uncle, we're, we're the best friends. We're, he's, like, he's like a little kid just like us. Ah. I loved he'd come over, he'd play video games with us, show us how to throw a baseball. You know what I realized later on in life? He didn't do that because he had no friends. He did it because his nephews didn't have a father. And he was going to walk into that father role and provide covering for his nephews and help those boys have a male influence in their life. If you have family in your life that don't have a mama, don't have a father, you can, because you love Jesus, step in and provide that affection, that leadership, that help. If my 
family is falling down. I don't, I don't just close my eyes and then it's not happening. I can step in and stand with those I love and be in a, in a, in a, in a way a, a means of redemption for my own family. We don't live and die alone, gang. It's not just true in family, but this is what, the, this is what a church means. Being a church means not every one of us has a strong family. That happens. That happens. When you're part of a church, it means you're known, you're seen, you're cared for. And when one of us falls down, we give a rip that you fell down. I love sometimes something will happen. Someone in our church family, someone dies in the family. Someone goes through a hard time. And I'll hear weeks later how people in the church came around them and brought them meals or visited them in their home, saw them in the hospital. It doesn't have to be me doing everything. It's us taking care of one another. Because we can't all, we cannot survive alone. The Bible says it is not good for people to be alone. One of the reasons we need community is we cannot survive alone. We can't do it. We need one another. And every one of you, every one of us, in different ways, have a chance to step into people's lives and be a source of redemption, a, a, a source of light, a source of hope, a source of help. It may not be as dramatic as my uncle, but it might be. In our city, In India, there's not a lot of orphans. You know why? Because if, if, a, if a kid is abandoned, someone in the family will catch them. The extended family will come around to help. It's a beautiful thing. God's, God is good. And God wants good for his people. And God gave his good law to warn us of sin to provide for the poor, to redeem the broken. And in our day, that works when we do what we're called to do, when, we're, when, we, when we become who we are called to become, people who are not completely inward-focused, me and mine, but look up and see the people around us and say, Man, Lord, you've called me to this neighborhood, to this family, to this workplace. How can I step into this world I live in and be a source of redemption, hope, and generosity? Ruth and Boaz have a child. That child gives Naomi great joy. She's got a grandbaby. She has hope again. They name that baby Obed. Obed has a son later on named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David, whom we know as king. This foreign migrant worker went from welfare to being the great-great-grandmother of King David and is even in Matthew 1.1, her name is listed in the lineage of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Her name is still spoken to this day. To this day. 
wherever we start, wherever we are, our faithfulness can be redeemed by God for greatness. With that said, let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this, this day, for your word that is true. Lord, wake us up. Give us a heart of generosity. Give us a heart that looks beyond our own hurts to the needs and lives of others. Give us a heart that cares the way you care. Help us truly be your people in this world. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.